the boy is here, his dad is me, and you are Rick Pena. Famous, famous. I'm looking at a Texas A&M graduate, right? That's right. Aren't you supposed to go whoop or something like that when somebody no, says that? I, okay. Yeah, I, I, I did it silently. You know? <laughs> gotcha. Okay. And then so you went to, you worked at Ace Group for 17 years and straight out of school, then Marsha McLennan, then Zurich, and now the Hartford. And then this press release that I found on the internet, you can find all kinds of things, that, that good looking mug of you on the internet. And then, uh, so you're now the... Energy, you are like the energy czar. You're like overall energy in the world, or what? What? What is it? Well, I, that's that, that's an actually that's an older older press release that was from five years ago. So, I was brought in by the Hartford to start up the energy business. So, I'm an underwriter. So, I'm the guy or the individual who builds a portfolio of insurance. I mean, energy buyers who need insurance. So here at the Hartford, we provide property and casualty for businesses. I focus on energy business. So that's what I started off doing here. But since then, I also have been given, given additional responsibilities. I also run a large property business. So we underwrite large property schedules. So this is the big stuff, the Fortune 2000 type companies uh, around the U.S. Uh, and then in addition to that, I also run our national accounts casualty business. So think of that same Fortune 2000 buyer, uh, and they need workers' compensation, they need liability insurance, they need auto liability insurance. That business runs reports into me also. So I run three businesses for the Hartford for larger customers on a national basis. Just for the benefit of the boy and others that may be listening, property and casualty in a really quick nutshell means what? So property insurance, you're insuring physical structures, buildings, high rises, factories, warehouses. So that's property insurance. So you have to, you have as a business, you have to insure your business. So you have to insure that a tornado doesn't come in and wipe out a, a facility of yours in, in, in central Texas. And then casualty insurance is you're insuring people. So workers' compensation, if you get hurt on a job, basically your employer is responsible for giving you benefits for medical and for lost time. So that's workers' compensation, which is a U.S. product. You don't, that's what we, we, we do that in the U.S. We protect our workers. Liability insurance, if you make a product, you, know, you have liability associated with that. So you have to buy insurance to protect yourself for that. And then auto liability is if you drive, if you have a fleet of vehicles or trucks going down I-35 in Texas, you know, and, and there's an accident and they're liable, then, then that's the insurance they have to buy as, as a business owner to protect themselves in case one of their vehicles is in an accident and they're held liable to a third party who gets injured for that, in that accident. Did you watch Happy Days growing up? I watched Happy Days. Do you remember when the Fonz jumped the shark? And nowadays they call that that when something jumps the shark that uh, it is the uh, inevitable slide or the downhill beginning the downhill slide to oblivion. Where do you think the economy is or the opportunities are for college kids in the next uh, five years? Can we jump the shark or do you think things are going to be better? Yes, yeah, so I, I don't. I think things are going to be really good. Uh, I just don't feel even post-COVID, that we're going to see a decline like some people predicted when the COVID started a year ago. And the, the reason is that I kind of compare the, the COVID crisis to the Spanish flu of 1918 or whatever it was. And after that, you had the roaring 20s. And after that, you had the Great Depression. But there's so much pent-up demand. There's so much 
so much catalyst in the economy via low interest rates, via uh, infrastructure investment, which is about to happen uh, under the Biden administration, that I think things are going to be really good. I think that's why the stock market is inflated right now. It's just a forward-looking indicator of what we're going to be seeing over the next three to four years. So I, I have a different outlook or perception of what's about to happen. So, you know, I, I think jobs, there are pockets where uh, there are not opportunity for college graduates, but in my industry, for example, there's tons of opportunity. We're dying for, for kids out of college to uh, come work for us because we have to start investing in the future in our industry. So in, in mind, you pretty pretty big company, and you've got economists that you talk to and hear from, and, I, and you're up high, so you hear all this uh, economic prognostication, correct? So that's not just your opinion based on listening to the TV or reading a few newspapers or magazines. Your take on when you said how bullish you were, how how that you thought things were going to be very strong is based on a lot of information, correct? Correct. So, yeah. So if you think about what I do, if, if businesses aren't around, they're not buying insurance. And so I have to know if there's the economy will be moving forward or backwards and they, they payroll. We want job growth to happen. So we want payrolls to increase. We want them to buy more vehicles. So we do have our economists, yes, who advise us on the outlook. So yeah, so the opinion was not mine. That is a, you know, there's people that I do meet with to talk about that stuff. So do you have any questions about his take on the economy overall? You referenced the 20s now to the roaring 20s uh, 100 years ago. And then you like mentioned that the Great Depression did happen afterwards and there was a recession in, in uh, 1929. Do you predict something like that is going to happen? You know, I wish I, I, I wish I could say no, but the answer is I don't think so because the reason you had the, the, the it was actually more than was it was a depression, not a recession that happened actually, and the reason we had that was there was deregulation back then. There was not a backstop, which is today's Social Security, for instance, that was invented during the New Deal. You know, Roosevelt back then he put that together to get them out of that. There was a lot of lack of controls in place back then, and I think now there are so many controls via the Fed. Uh, via backstops, uh, that that it could that I think it can be protected by doing that. But that's a great question, in that we have an overhang, you know, that we all have to worry about, and that's our our deficit. I mean, we are our country is in so much debt. That's always a risk we have to look out for. So that's the type of big shift or big impact issue which could put us in a tough spot down the road. But I think that's not related to an economic boom. That's just reality. Even without an economic boom in the next few years, I think that's always something we to worry about. Well, and there are always cycles uh, that where uh, different industries go through boom and bust, but hopefully if one is going down, another is coming up. So, you know, Correct. hopefully there. So, okay, quick intro on the boy. Good grades, good test scores, has been accepted into several engineering programs, one of which is A&M. What are your goals for college, son? I'd like to major at this point in computer science and make a bunch of make a bunch of friends in college and have a good time, but really prepare myself to get employed right out of college and do well somewhere. I, I'm really thinking the tech industry, but I'm not completely sold on that. But that's as of right now, that's really what I'm... You came out of A&M with a finance degree, correct? That is correct. Yeah. And, and at the time when I was in school, it was, I was there from 85 to 88. I wanted to be an investment banker. 
I wanted to go into the markets and I wanted to make a lot of money doing that. And, and one afternoon in 1987, I believe it was, I came back from class and I took a nap in my fraternity house and I woke up and the stock market had crashed. I'll never forget that. And then I realized that I didn't know what the heck it was all about and, and I didn't want to take that risk. So I said, I guess I'm not going to do that. I started interviewing. I interviewed with energy companies, accounting firms, and I insured and interviewed in the insurance company. At the time, it's called Sigma, which had a property and casualty division and became ace later, but I interviewed with them. And I said, wow, this is pretty cool. That's where I ended up 30, almost 32 years later. And so your career plan, you just said you were going to be a, a Wall Street banker. What were you thinking yeah. was successful back then? I mean, your idea of success was what? It was, you remember the movie Wall Street? It was, it was Gordon Gecko. you know, it was, it was, it was, it was making a lot of money. And, you know, I, I say that, but for me, it was being in a position of leadership in, in the business world. And really, I didn't, I, it, it, it could have been a lot of things at the time, but I just knew that I wanted to, to be a leader somewhere in the business community and make a difference and build, build a business or run a business. And, uh, and then, you know, just as, as you kind of progress in your, in your thoughts, it's about leading people and helping people be successful. That's actually the fun part of the job. So back to where you went to college, you referenced how UT was considered the, uh, the Michigan of the South. And so both of those are T20 schools or close to T20 schools. Do you think your career would have went differently if you went to a school that was, you know, regarded as elite with like, you know, high endowment and low acceptance rates? Or has, have you been thankful for, or not necessarily thankful, but just glad you went to A&M and you're happy there and the connections you made there were worthwhile? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Had I gone to Cornell, I think I would have had a different career path. If I'd gone to the, the, the military academies, I think I would have been a different career path. And do I think I would have been more successful Possibly. I think on average, those individuals are exposed. I mean, if you think of Stanford of Palo Alto, California, and how they're exposed to all these companies that had no time to come to AM or would not want to come to AM. So I think to answer your question, you have more opportunity coming out of those Ivy League or more elite schools, even Notre Dame. I put Notre Dame in that in that category where they're they're sought after by the graduates are sought after by these big companies. Going back, do I wish I'd gone to one of those? Yeah, I remember my dad telling me when I was when I was a kid in high school. He said, you know, you should go military academy, and you know, we'll talk to some congressmen or whatever, get you in. And I had no interest in doing it. Looking back, I wish I'd done it. I wish I'd been in the military. I think that would I would have been a better leader for it. So I went to a great school. You had good interview opportunities. I mean, you you weren't necessarily penalized for not going to one of those. No, great interview opportunities, but. So I look at my, my daughter who went to UT. So she ended up going to work for IBM and she was in New York. Her boyfriend, he's a Cornell guy. That's why he's Cornell's example. And even her going to UT, she got the job because she interned in Austin for IBM in the summertime and then they liked her and they offered her a position in New York. And she's, I'm going to New York. I can tell that all the other graduates who are, she was in her graduate training class, I guess you'd call it. They were all Ivy Leaguers, most of them. I don't think it, she had not had that internship, she would never got an interview at IBM. So they just got a different door they get to go through is what, I, what I'm saying. And they end up in the same place. And UT, like I said, Michigan, the South, one of the top universities in the world, even that has a hard time getting to that extra door that a, a Brown or a Cornell or Dartmouth may have a chance to get into. We were talking to a guy last week and he was talking about how he didn't necessarily think 
what college you went to mattered to a point as long as it's as long as it's comparable um, which I thought was really interesting that he made that distinction what do you think is considered a comparable level of college to even get like the opportunities that you had out of a and I mean much less like IBM or something like that clarify what you so, think so, those opportunities when you mean op- when like you- just good interviews and just like a straight path to success in the business world so you're asking what other universities are comparable to that? Or just like what, what's, what's the line? Like what, like what acceptance rates or where is there, is there a line among like public, you know, like, you know what I'm asking? Like, okay. So he reads yeah. like most people that are really trying to figure out what their path is going to be. He reads a lot on the, a lot on the internet. That's yeah. why he's quoting these acceptance rates and all these things. But I, you can't negate or, or discount the the value of alumni networks in terms of interviews and things like that, yeah. correct? Or in yeah. terms of just relationships that you make while you're in college and internships and all those things. It's not right. just the college. Would you agree with that? Yes, but that's a big part of it. Yes, there is a line there. I mean, to the question, I, I think there is a line where I would put it into three categories. I would put the, you have those elite universities, which are very tough to get to. They're very expensive. Uh, and then you have the middle, which is a big segment where A&M and UT and SMU and TCU and Baylor are there. And then you have, you have universities, which, you know, when I get resumes of individuals, I, I, I don't consider them as competitive candidates because they go to universities. But, you know, some big, I'll say like big commuter schools. Um, Which serve big, a purpose, uh, and know. a lot of people step from those. And Well, right. take the blend program at A&M. Some yep. people don't get into A&M, but then they go to blend for a year and get into A&M and go and do big things. Same thing with right. uh, Austin Community College and UT and different things. So, yep. And then smaller schools, they, it's not to mean that you're not saying they can't eventually be successful. They just don't necessarily receive the same – benefits right. of going to a top tier school. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I'm just saying those doors. There's, I think there's different doors to different companies based on those. And, but once you get in, it's up to you and you can be very successful once you get in the door to that same company. And once you're in there, it's what you make of it. Cause you hear in, in my career is I have individuals who work for me and, and, you know, as I moved up in the world, they could care less than what they in. They thought it was pretty cool. They just want to talk about football at A&M. But, um, you know, I was a finance degree from A&M, which at the time was, you know, one, not one of the best business schools. It's much better now than it was when I was there. But once you're in, it goes back to your point about relationships, extracurricular, leadership skills, uh, having a vision of where you want to be. So once you're in, the rules change is what I'm trying to say. The background behind that question is because, like, on the internet, I always hear like two really contrasting opinions. Whether it's like moms on uh, on a college forum talking about like, oh, if my son if he doesn't get into this school, he's never going to be successful. And then on the other hand, just people, a lot of times, parents at like school things will tell you like, oh, wherever you go, you know, it'll work out as long as you love what you do, you'll be successful. And so, like, both of those yeah. contrasting opinions are often like just through like loudspeakers just told to, like, high school graduates. And I just really wanted to ask like your opinion. On, uh, on those yeah, two tips. I think I, I think it's a combination of the two. And there are some folks who feel back to the IBM Cornell idea that if you don't go to Cornell, you're never going to work with IBM. And therefore, you're not going to be, you're not going to have a chance to be as successful as maybe that parent was. And, and that's how they were raised. But I don't believe in that. I think it's a combination of the two. And 
but more to your individual aspiration to achieve what you want to achieve for yourself. And not everyone wants to be the CEO of a company. Me, I don't want to be the CEO of a company. I, I like what I do now. This is what I aspire to do to get to the level I am now. And I've got 10 more years to work. And, and if I do this for the rest of my 10 years, I've, I'm there. So that's my, that's my uh, vision of success. So it's all different. But if somebody, let's just say somebody, a contact of yours who knew somebody, who knew somebody sent you a resume and say, I know this kid, this kid's a great kid and went to just a regular school. If you also had, you, uh-huh. those kinds of things matter too, do they not? Oh yeah. No, they do. Yeah, they, they, they do. And, and I will, I will interview that individual if they come with a, a good recommendation. And, and uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, if he has a finance degree from a school there versus A&M, they're learning the same. And so it really comes down to what did they do outside the classroom? What were they exposed to? And what was important for me, you know, when I was in school at A&M, I was not in the core cadets. I was, I, I chose the, the, the non-reg life, as we call it there. So I was in a fraternity. But through that fraternity, I, I got to be an officer and I got to become a leader through that. And I made a lot of connections, which I still utilize to this day. And that for me, I would say the important part of going to a big school of 40,000 at the time was a big school exposes you to a lot of things. So that's another part of the equation as well. Were you comfortable the whole time or did you do things that kind of stretched you while you were there? I think I was always stretched. And you got to realize that, that, you know, we, we come from a small town in Texas and we were not exposed to a lot of things that a lot of my classmates were. Houston was a big city. Dallas was a big city and Austin was big for us, if you recall. When I went there, I also realized that I didn't have the prep that a lot of my friends did who I became close friends with. And, you know, they went to private schools or they went to big schools in Houston you know, those courses I never took in high school. So, so was I stretched? Yes. And I had to catch up to them, you know, so that was part of the stretch. Now you didn't even, was, if I remember correctly, you just, you went, you jumped in, you didn't room with anybody from, from home or anything like that. You just kind of jumped in, right? Correct. No, I got into A&M a little later because I applied late. I was supposed to go to Texas Tech. My dad went to Texas Tech <laughs> and I, and I, I, and I was in, uh, but I got applied to A&M for fun and I got in. And, um, and I and go, so oh, let's, let me, let me ask you a question. Just a normal student in high school. I mean, no, no perfect SAT scores, no, no valedictorian, just regular person, right? I was a regular person. My, my, I have very average SAT scores, average B student in high school. Cause I had too much fun, but I knew I was a smart guy. I just, just I just enjoyed, you know, it just wasn't a priority for me in high school. And I got an A&M and then I watched what was going on. And I said, I'm as smart as these, as these guys I'm becoming friends with. And my confidence kind of built based on that. Once I got in, I said, yeah. And I tell you, my daughter, the ones who went to UT, same situation. She went into UT very intimidated that she was not going to be as smart as all those UT kids. That's a great school. And she got there and she goes, I got this. And she came out of there like a three, seven, I think, or something like that. So she did. I mean, so that just tells you it's not based on your preconceived notion of what happened or what could happen. And so, and it's interesting, you just went through this with your oldest, you're about to go through it with your youngest, the job market. And for you, there, there were a lot of good prospects back then, but any thoughts in terms of how things have changed from then to now or anything related to that whole process of just interviewing? Uh, Well, I think it's very similar. 
because in 1988, when I graduated, we were in an, in an economic downturn in Texas. I think we we're in a tail end of recession, maybe in a recession. And things weren't great. And energy companies were, the oil price of oil had tanked. I was not optimistic, but there's a career center at AM and the companies were coming and they were investing in the future. So for me, I started interviewing probably early fall. I was a spring graduate. So I started interviewing early. I remember interviewing with Shell Oil. It was really early in the process. I didn't get the job, but just having that experience of uh, sitting down and putting on a suit, which was, you know, we had to do back then in person and stuff like that, uh, was a great experience. It made me better at interviews. And, and here's a little story for you. So I remember when I interviewed with Sigma, I had to drive to Houston and they put me up at the, the Galleria and I went to the office. And But I had interviewed with a few companies already, so I felt confident. And I and I interviewed all these folks. And, and when I interviewed with uh, the regional vice president, the head guy, his name was Stacy Bloom. And I still talk to him to this day. He asked me about my being the treasurer of my fraternity. He, he wanted to really dig into that and, and not, not based on leadership, but he wanted to know how I managed risk because this is an insurance company. And he was asking me about, you know, as a treasurer, how did I, this is a true story, how did I buy kegs? Because we would have, back then, you could have keg parties and we would buy 13 kegs per party. That was the number. But how did I do it? And he and I, what I would do is I would give a blank check to a, a pledge, and he would go down to specs or whatever it was called back then, and he would pay it, and they would deliver the giving a blank check to a pledge. You know, was a risk that we took. So we talked about that stuff. And he wasn't being critical of me, but you know, he, he kind of equated to leadership, controls, and and management of a process basically. And I got the job, and I I, I talk about it now. If I was not the treasurer of that fraternity, I don't think I would have got the job. True story. And you had to decide you wanted to do that? To work there? No, well, to be the treasurer. Is that just something that was a little bit out of your comfort zone? Oh, it was. Oh, yeah. I mean, when I was, I, wa- I knew I wanted to be an officer of my fraternity. I had no real aspiration to be the president because too much things to worry about. And uh, I was a finance major. And and uh, so I became the treasurer. And, and I learned it on the job. That was So back to your question earlier, that was a stretch there to learn how to be a treasurer because, you know, only thing I managed up to there was my checkbook, my own personal college checkbook, which I didn't do a great job at because we had to balance checkbooks back then. Remember that? I, I, I do remember that. <laughs> back to your question. I think it's similar to what it was back then. I think you're always going to have downturns in the economy and job opportunities. But I just think there's, if you find what you want to go into, whether it's law or computer science, get your MBA one day, once you figure that out, you'll find there's a lot of opportunity out there. There, there really is a lot of opportunity. The demographics of, of what we we're putting up with now, where you have individuals like myself, I'm 54 years old, you know, I will retire. And do we have people to come in and, and work in an industry in the future since me, the young guy, is now an old guy retiring and we have gaps. There's huge gaps out there. And you just got to identify what those gaps are and you can find a lot of opportunity, in my opinion. So if you were 18, again, knowing what you know now, would you do anything differently? Definitely. I mentioned the military academy earlier. I would, I, looking back at that, I just have the utmost respect for you know the guys that go to the Air Force or military academies. And, and I see friends of mine whose kids do that. And I go, I wish I had done that. That's one thing I, I, I would do differently. I would have considered medicine. You know, I look back, I go, ah, I guess I'm smart enough to, I mean, I could have been a doctor and, and I, I really wish I had 
thought about that more. But I think the the one thing that really I, I look at the most now is, you know, in the business world, or even if you're not in the business world, if you go to computer science or engineering, you need to have a business foundation. So I know a lot of engineers who get their MBA and they're running companies now. They're running they're running venture capital firms now. So but let me ask you a question how- on that. Yeah. Okay, so the boy has already gotten contacted from one of the engineering programs about a five year MBA program, but yet most uh-huh. business schools they want, you know, they want three to five years experience in that. So it's not the same thing, but is there benefit for somebody that's going to get an engineering degree to have one of those five year deals? Or do you think they ought to go into the workplace, learn some things, and then come back and go to a biz school? I would do it all at once. I don't differentiate in my career now. People go back later. I think maybe it's easier for them because they understand how the real world works. But I don't think it's from my side as a hiring manager, I don't think it helps or hurts to, to do it all at once. I just look at careers and I think it's it's a short window and people's priorities in life change. So if they want to be an engineer and they want to go back later, they may they may get married. They may start having kids. They may not have time to get their MBA. If you can get in now, invest it, knock it out in five years, personally, I think that that's the path I would take. So if, you, if you're choosing between a college like A&M and UT and you just get into their engineering program, they don't offer that five-year MBA, but then you get into a college that's less competitive, less elite, less selective. But they have a good engineering program. I mean, good enough. They, and they offer this five-year MBA. Is a five-year MBA from a not as selective, not as competitive, not as elite school comparable to going and getting a four-year engineering degree from your second category of schools that you named? I would say so. Second versus third category. Third with an MBA would be yeah would be the uh, that's a that's a great question and then that's and some others would answer it differently. I would say you'd you'd opt for that second tier, get your four year degree, and then figure out the MBA how you're going to get it later. I just think that that door that you're going to walk in initially will still be at your disposal if you stick with that tier two college. So that's that. That's what I would recommend. So does that make sense when you say? So you're talking about if you can do a, an engineering degree at A and M, no MBA, five year MBA, or go to a school similar size, uh, just not as competitive, but strong engineering, known for engineering, and get a five year MBA. You're saying go ahead and do the four year at a higher tier school than doing the five year. Is that correct? I would, cause, yeah, because I think that 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 four year degree is going to get you into a better MBA program, possibly. Like I had a lot of A&M engineers go to UT for MBA, to be honest with you. And uh, I think that's a great path right there. I just think that that's going to open up more doors for you. If you have a chance to go to a more competitive school, I would stretch it and try to do that. Uh, thank you for your advice on that. So I have another question right yeah. here. Has We asked you if you would do anything different uh, when you're 18. The follow-up to that is, has your idea of what success has changed from then to now? It's a great question. Yeah, I kind of alluded to it earlier. I think, you know, when you're younger, it's about making a lot of money and, you know, driving a nice car and all that stuff like that. And, but for me, it kind of, you, you, you switch to what really is success. And back to what I said about being a leader of people. You know, I, I kind of joke with my folks, my younger folks who work for me, and I, and I talk about what I do. So, so I, I said, I underwrite business and I run businesses. 
But with that comes acquisition of new customers. So when you when you land a big account, you land. I, I did this once. Like I landed the Boeing account. I landed in Chicago. You know, you think this is it. I mean, this is success. I landed a Boeing account. But the only person that knows you landed the Boeing account is you. And when you when you're done with your career, no one's gonna say, "Oh yeah, Rick landed the Boeing account back in 19, 2004, or whatever it was." But what they're gonna remember you for is what type of leader you were. Did people enjoy working for you? Did you run businesses successfully? And were you a role model to those individuals? And, and that, now in my career, I, I look at that and I've done it for a while now. I've, I've managed people. I've started people in their careers. I've mentored a lot of individuals. And that is very, that's very fulfilling. And I really enjoy doing that. And I really enjoy the, the human aspect of it. And when I do retire, say in 10 years from now, I want people to come to my retirement party and say, I really liked or loved working for Rick. He was the best boss I ever had. And I was actually interviewing someone last week, a former employee. She worked for me in Chicago in the early 2000s. She works in San Francisco now. I have an opening. And I called her and she said, Rick, I'm not ready to move now. But if I did, I'd come work for you because you were the best boss I ever had. And that for me is success. The, the money side will come with it. The financial stability will come with it. Uh, but that's that's fulfillment in my opinion. So I have another question um, uh-huh. linking back to the engineering MBA thing. If someone graduates, they decide they want a computer science degree from college because of like the job security or they're just interested in it. Can someone transfer over from a computer science degree into business without an MBA? Yes. Yes. But I would advise that you take some classes in college, maybe get a minor in business or just be familiar with it. So that, that's exactly, I'm glad you brought that. That's what I want to talk about with you. I, I just think if, if you, if you mentioned job security, if you go into engineering or computer science, and I had the same discussion with my nephews, they're both Aggie engineers. And I asked them one day at Christmas, we were sitting there on my island in my house. I go, what do you want to do? And they said, we will make a lot of money. Uncle Rick. I go, all right. So, you know, I said, you know, if you're going to be an engineer, you're going to max out at some point. If you're just going to be building, designing things, you're, unless, unless you own your business, there's a there's a ceiling that you're going to hit, so you got to think about what you want to do. If you want to really be an engineer and make a lot of money, you have to own your own engineering firm, possibly. And uh, and with that, you have to know how to make payroll, how to invest in capital, how to attract capital, and you have to know how all the money works. So, an MBA. I used an example earlier. Some friends who have used the MBA as a track. These individuals went on to big things with that MBA, and and. Just, just think of it this way. When you watch CNBC, and hopefully you watch CNBC, because that's that teaches you so much business, that, that, that channel. It, it allows you to understand why companies make decisions to acquire or be acquired by companies. And it has to do with cash flow, has to do with value of the company, of two combined companies. And if you acquire a company, you have to understand why it's a good company or why it's not a good company. That is what an MBA or a business background will allow you to do. And if you're just an engineer and you have no idea how an income statement works or a balance sheet works or what the time value of money is, you're at a big disadvantage. And then just use that stuff in your everyday life as well. So I, I just think that for someone to go down an engineering or a technical computer science path, they're going to max out eventually. And if that's what you want to do, it's great. But you just got to decide, do you want to have bigger horizons ahead of you? Well, and, you know, that's interesting. And that that thing, that article I read in the journal, uh, that there was a study talking about the pandemic, you know, the 45% decline 
in jobs. But the other thing that they start talking about is, is that people who find jobs with certain degrees are five times more likely to be stuck in mismatched jobs if they don't end up when they get in a tough environment. But they make a suggestion that they call them foundational skills that a lot of times schools aren't sending kids out with anymore. And those can be soft skills. Those can be hard skills. But I can remember encountering college grads that didn't even know how to use Excel very well, or I guess how emotional intelligence or how to read people, how to manage people and things like that. And so if if you're going to do a technical degree or any kind of degree, what other soft skills or things that do you look for when you're interviewing people or, or do you think uh, that need to be focused on? And, and I, it's, it's, it's about leadership. What did they do in college to broaden their horizons? Back to me growing up in a small town, I was not exposed to a whole lot except, you know, fun without, you know, the fun we had in high school, I guess. Having leadership opportunities, being involved in organizations, uh, and not just being a member, but being a leader of, of that. I'm big on personal finance. I just think that that's one thing that when, when, when you go to college, I, both of my daughters did it, take a personal finance class. So you can learn how to write a check. You learn what a deductible is on, on, a, on, a, on a healthcare policy, and, and it'll just train you for a little more realities in life. But from a soft school perspective, I hate to say it this way, but when you're in college, and if, say if you go to A&M, or if you go to A&M, it's 50,000, 60,000 kids now, you're going to learn how to communicate with people. You're going to learn how to look people in the eye when you talk to them. Uh, you're going to learn how to shake a hand, or you'll learn how to t- talk to an adult, You know, say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. It's okay to do that, by the way, to learn how to have a conversation with someone. And a lot of people just don't know how to do that even coming out of college, they just don't have those social skills. And I think by being in a large university, exposed to other people, exposed to other individuals and their families, because you meet other families and how they were raised and so forth, it just it just builds your your brand, I guess you could say, a little bit. But you got to be skills. willing to get out of the comfort zone. A lot of kids go off to college, room with their best friend from from high school, oh, yeah. and then they just kind of hang out in that same peer group, high school group, and they don't—they don't get out of their comfort zone. They don't meet people. They don't take chances and or risks. Yeah. Yep. I mean, I, you said it earlier. I, I went to A and I was in a dorm. I got in late, so I, I didn't have a chance to room anybody. I didn't have any—we didn't have any friends. I went to A and M. We didn't a whole lot of them. Didn't go right out of school to A and M like I did, so I didn't have that chance. But I roomed with a senior from Jasper, Texas. Got to be good friends with him. We didn't have a whole lot in common because he was three years, four years older than me. But I met guys around in the dorm. One works in the insurance industry. Now, one of them, actually, it was John. He became the guy that did the countdown at NASA. He was the head of the NASA space program for a while. And at one time, he was doing the space shuttle countdowns. And that's him. And now he works for Boeing or something like that. And you just you just meet so many different people. I learned a lot from that guy. Just He was an engineer. He was an aerospace engineer and studied all the time, but he ventured out and he had a, he built his soft skills outside of just the engineering world and became very successful with that. So when choosing roommates, people always like to be like, oh, well, like, what if I get someone crazy? Or like, what if I get someone that like, that like won't let me study? Or what if I, like something like terrible happens if I go potluck? That's why I'm going to like play it safe and room with someone I know or room with someone from high school. Does the reward outweigh the risk when it comes to rooming with someone that you've never met before? I would say no. I think there's a there's a big risk there. Uh, even my daughters had those situations. Their initial roommates they didn't all click. 
but they kept like both of them had four roommates their freshman year, so or three roommates each, and they would connect with one or the other two. They probably just lost touch with. I would say, if you went to college, your first semester, it's okay to live with someone you know, but as long as you guys venture out and meet a lot of people and may may be prepared to go your separate ways. I mean, if you went to A&M and you decided to go into a fraternity, I'm just making that up. I mean, I have an interest in that. And your roommate did not, that's okay. And you're going to probably go your separate ways, but it's okay to have a little stability at first. And I wouldn't say you're, you're missing anything. Cause I think you will both kind of figure it out when you get there. Yeah. But your sister got into situation and it wasn't the most comfortable and it, it's the people have to push through uncomfortable things as well. And we're kind of having a, a debate about that right now. And I, I think taking a risk and pushing through some adversity and learning how to, that's true. in high school, you're spoiled rotten and you're not used to having to compromise necessarily with somebody that's in the same room with you. That Back when I was in school, listened to Letterman every night until it was over when I had a, a 7 a.m. business math class, it was miserable. But you push through it. So what what about foreign languages and minors in foreign language, or is there benefit in that? Yeah, I, I'd say you got to learn Spanish. <laughs> Everybody's, you know, just in Europe, everybody knows English. I think here you have to know, you have to know Spanish. I think it will just help you in the diverse cultural world that we're going to have in the future. And Spanish, I think, is top of my list. So I took a Spanish class in college, and I grew up speaking some Spanish too, so I figured out how much I didn't know, but I think that that couldn't hurt. And if you have a chance to take some a language, I would probably take Spanish over French or German. I would t- study a common language. Son, other questions? Not that I can think of. Okay, so uh, you feel like you're very bullish on the economy in the next few years. Any specific careers that you think are are very exciting that the boy or other people ought to be looking at um, versus careers that maybe have jumped the shark, per se? Yeah, I, I believe consulting is a great way to start a career. I mean, you can go into engineering, computer science, or engineering, and go work as a consultant somewhere. And and what, what consulting does is it allows you to see how a business thinks. So take him through what a, that would look like. I mean, when because he doesn't, or and the, anybody else that may hear this, what, what do you mean by consulting? Okay. okay, great. I'm glad to do it. So here in my company, we underwrite risk, okay? So we underwrite risk from the company comes in, we determine what the risk is, how to price it, and then we book the business, we write the business, and then we account for the business, and then we service the business. So that's great, but we don't know everything. So we don't know how to best build a process, okay? And the process of underwriting, the process of issuing insurance policy. And there are experts in the world who help us do that. So we go to McKinsey, we go to Deloitte, we go to EY. And they have, for instance, insurance practices, which come work with us as companies to help us solve problems because we can't be expected to know everything. So they have individuals and they have tools and processes, which they teach us and sell us for a lot of money. And they come in for like a year. And if, if say, for instance, I want to build a new billing system, I could go build one, uh, buy one, or I could have them come in and help me learn how to build it. So they're a consultant, which helps other businesses be more successful. And for any business that think they know it all, they, they don't. 
unless they're a small two-man business or whatever, they don't do much. But but we we were a seventeen billion dollar company. We have eighteen thousand employees. You know, we have a lot to do. So a consultant, like I mentioned, McKinsey, Ernst and Young, Deloitte, they hire individuals out of college and they teach them those processes. And you go work for them, but you work with other companies. So you would come work for a Hartford, for instance, and learn, teach us how to do things, but you learn also about us. And we end up hiring those consultants. They're so almost like industry, business analysts in a, round, in a roundabout way, correct? Yes. There's a lot of business analysis and they come in and they tear your business apart and they ask you a lot of questions and then they, they come up with a solution based on, on that. Yeah. And they so hire very diverse. They don't all oh, yeah. look for one. They look. They hire all kinds of degrees, correct? They have specific. But yes, they do. Correct. Yeah. A lot of, lot of engineers go into consulting. And you learn the business side of it there. And uh, I have uh, my niece who went to A&M. She went to, she's in consulting world now. She went to E&Y. Now she's with a smaller one. But she's traveling over the country, just meeting with companies. But she has teams she works with. So she's part of teams. But it really has helped her kind of determine what she wants to do next in her career. And one of these companies she works for will come hire her eventually in a senior leadership type position. And if you you'll see that a lot of leaders of companies come from consultants. They come from accounting firms uh, because they, they start on the outside and they come in and then they get they, and they get the big jobs. You see more of that than in individuals working up the way internally. So you think uh, consulting, regardless of your degree, if you can get into that, that would be a great opportunity. Yes, definitely. Yeah, that's something you should really have on your radar if you want to have a, a big open horizon ahead of you. So think about that. And and consulting could be, like I mentioned, those three companies, uh, you have uh, Boston Consulting, you have a lot of smaller firms. I, I guess I, I can't name them, th- them right now, but uh, there's there's a lot of consulting firms out there, and they do hire at universities big time. And there's even like little, well, I say little, there's boutique consulting firms that specialize on specific even niches and things that, that are regional that do real well too. That is correct. That's right. Go ahead, son. Yes, sir. So other than consulting, do you have any other advice that you would hope that graduating high schoolers and college kids can really take to heart and you think that will uh, benefit them in the future? Yeah, I would I would try to think what's the next big thing, okay? So you have your standard industries, first of all. So insurance, I have not been pushing insurance on you. Put that out there for you. <laughs> insurance is a huge industry, and it's a recession-proof industry. All right. So all these companies that buy insurance, you have to buy insurance because you can't operate without insurance. We're the lifeblood of, of business. You know, if you're a doctor, you need insurance. If you drive a car, you need insurance. So that's a stable recession-proof industry. I always like to say insurance and shoes. You always need insurance. You always need shoes. So that's that's a stability uh, side there. But but be thinking in the future. Be thinking what are what's the next big thing which will take me out for the next 20, 30 years. So electric cars, for instance, you know, here we go. GM, Ford, they're all going to be competing with Tesla. So what are all the supporting technologies around that? Cloud is another example. Cryptocurrency. Is that something which is long-term sustainable? I don't know. I'm not smart enough to really understand that. Tesla just, I mean, Elon Musk just bought some big thing in it today, actually. what If you can figure out the direction the world is going and not have those jumping the shark type industries 
and identify those and stay away from them, that's critical. So I don't know the answer. I would always gear towards stability. That's that's my advice. You know, that's why insurance is something that it's always going to be there. There are thousands of jobs out there in, in my industry, and it's very exciting industry, actually. And it's an industry that no one knows about. A lot of kids coming out of college have no desire to go. My daughter, actually, younger one, A&M, she's going to work for Aon. And uh, she wanted to go into commercial real estate. And I, she decided to find an interview with Aon. And Aon is an insurance broker slash consultant. And they advise customers. And they're the middleman between myself and, 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 a, and a customer. And she's getting into it, but she has no idea what she's about to see. And when she gets in, she's going to say, wow, this is a pretty cool industry here. And as I told you, 32 years later, uh, I'm, I'm still doing it. But identify, I, I like to identify long-term stable industries if you can't identify the future industry. But there are going to be dying industries out there, you know, brick and mortar, the dying industry. And that's not that even sense? to say that there's not opportunity in industries that are dying if you have the right take on it. Since you've been in junior high, we've had a deal, help you through school or help you start a business. And so sometimes, I mean, you know folks that, that never even went to school that are very successful, do you not? I know folks that, yeah, yeah, you have the entrepreneurial route, which I think you have. You've, you've always been, you know, doing things, you know, taking risk early in life. And some individuals have no desire to go to college and finish for four years. And a lot of the guys like Elon Musk and those and Bill Gates never finished college. So, so that is possible, but I think it's rare. And you have to have that entrepreneurial desire you got to have the gut for it, and you have to be willing to take some punches along the way if you're going to do that. So but it's possible. I don't have that. That's not me at all. I'm not, you know, that's just, I don't have that in my DNA. It just, it takes a lot of different people to make the whole thing work. And so no, it does. you got to have people that, that go both routes to keep things moving and in balance, at least uh, yeah. somewhat. So, all right. Any other questions, son? No, sir. All right. So, so one, one other last piece of advice for you, as, as you make your decisions in life, one thing that really helped me in my career, and my wife will kick me if I, she hears me say this, I didn't get married till five years out of college. I'm not saying that that's had anything in my business career, but you go to college, you graduate college, I live with buddies in, down in Houston, and I had a good time. And then you get married and you have kids. And a lot of, a lot of people get married very early. I mean, they're 21 years old. And I just, I just think that there's state, there's, there's chapters in life. Looking back, I'm, I'm very glad that I experienced all those chapters. I didn't rush anything. Anyway, so just keep that in mind. Just be patient with life. You got plenty of time to do everything you want to do. That's what I'm saying. Even if it means getting out in five years, turning a four year into a five year, or for me, a four year into a 10 year, patience in a lot of different ways. Right. Uh, man, we appreciate your time. The hope for me is is that that the boy will actually get more and more comfortable engaging and asking questions and just thinking on the fly. Maybe if anybody ever hears this, that it might be of benefit to them as well. So you've definitely, your hometown boy done well. I appreciate that. Absolutely. And and honestly, I always told myself I'm going to do well. Because if you remember, I lived in D.C. as a kid, then I left and came back. But I saw outside of a small town, not to make fun of our small town, but I go, yeah, I can do this. And I always had a a little bit of confidence that I would be, do well. And I, I did. There you go. You get to hear my high tech. Uh, nope. That's the wrong one. Wait, where's my clapping? You even labeled them. <laughs> I did label them. You labeled it wrong. 
I like it. I, yeah, that, was, see, that was funny. No, I had clap. I can't figure this thing out. Well, uh, thank you, sir. It was truly a pleasure uh, <laughs> talking to you and meeting you. My son just cutting me off. So he's all, he's, like he's like five inches taller than me, 40 pounds heavier. He can, he, he just, he runs the show, man. All well, right. If you ever have questions as, as you're making decisions or down the road, if you're a junior in college and you have questions, I'm here and I'll be happy to answer those questions for you. I appreciate that, sir. Give you my advice. Thanks, Rick. Always have here. a great day. All right. You guys take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.